Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. Proverbs 25:20 says. Well, I've decided to wait a couple weeks before we jump back into the series on the household. As many of you know, after the week that my family has had, it would certainly feel like singing a song to a heavy heart um, about the household. If we start to jump in and talk about the household, well, I've been writing a eulogy for a household that has lost a member of their household, a dear son to them. So it didn't seem right uh, to just jump right back into the series on the household for my own heart um, at the very least. So there's a time for everything, um, as Ecclesiastes tells us, and it just didn't feel right just yet to go into it. So this week and next week, I'd like to begin a short survey on the book of Job, because that's where my heart and mind have been. And as many of, uh, of you know, your hearts have been there because you've been with us. We do a very good church, or a very good job here at Village of being a church that bears one another's burdens. So I know that because you've been uh, caring for our family so, so well through all of this, that the heaviness isn't just for us, that it has started to kind of seep out a little bit. So I wanted to address that. Uh, my mind has been heavy, and I've been speaking to people with heavy hearts uh, at a funeral and such. So I want to speak to some of you who may have heavy hearts and minds this morning. So the purpose will be learning how to suffer and grieve with integrity because of the hope in Christ. So as I said, Job is where we're going to be. Job chapter 19 is where we're going to start this morning. Job 19 verses 25 through 27. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them this morning, church. Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. The word of God for his people. Let us pray. Fathers, we come to your word this morning. We pray that you would speak to us clearly and that we might understand what you are saying to us um, in its full measure. We pray that we would be able to apply what we're reading in the story of Job to our own hearts. We pray that the work of the Holy Spirit would work through your word preached this morning and that you would help me in the way that I uh, carry uh, my words about to illuminate the truth of Christ as we look at the book of Job. So help me, help us, and we pray that we would honor you with our lips, uh, that we might be seen to be faithful and upright and blameless in the way that we speak about you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So everyone knows that Job is that book of the Bible that people often turn to in times of suffering. But what I've come to see Job as, as I've preached uh, on it uh, through funerals and such, is really a, a gospel-centered book. Job is really a gospel-centered book. And there's a sense in which we could even call this sermon series, if you want to call that over these two weeks, the Gospel of Job, the, the good news of Job. So while Job is no doubt tragic, it is ultimately in the classic genre of comedy. And I don't mean by any means that it's funny. Uh, when, I, when I say that it's in the genre of comedy, I don't mean in the modern sense that it's humorous. I mean that it's an optimistic book. That's what that means. It, it begins high and then it crashes low, but finally it ends happily ever after. 
It ends actually higher than where it began. So in that sense, it's actually an optimistic book. It's a comedic book, we would call it. And I think this is important to see because many times people run to Job in order to validate their prolonged sullenness, kind of camp out there for a while. As they should for a time, right? It's not bad that people should go to the book of Job when they're suffering. Actually, that's what this book is for. So the mother who has lost a dear son needs to realize that she is not alone in her suffering. She's not the first person to lose someone. A father who has uh, lost his job and worked hard for a living but then suddenly he loses this livelihood shouldn't feel that he's the first man to fall upon hard times. A discouraged husband whose wife has grown bitter over hard providences shouldn't feel that his wife is the only one telling him to curse God and die, as we will see later in the book of Job. The book of Job is for sufferers. Okay, That's who it's for. But it's not an endorsement of long-term depression. It offers grace and hope to the graceless and the hopeless. And unfortunately, many times people fail to obtain this grace from this book of Job. They miss the gospel. They, they fail to obtain the grace that is exhibited therein. Hebrews 12:15 says this. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now, this is my concern for the people who read the book of Job wrongly. They fail to see the gospel story exhibited, and because of this, they see it as a kind of hat tip to despondency. It's fine to be an unhappy and uh, depressed person all the time. And that seed of despondency and depression will sprout and take root in the form of bitterness. That's what Hebrews tells us. And when that begins to take root in your life, in your heart... Hebrews says that it causes trouble. And not only are you affected by this uh, root of bitterness, not only are you depressed, but it says that many become defiled by it. Many. So it starts to grow. So, so in a sense, it, become, uh, it seems that the root of bitterness is invasive. Right? Think about that root growing down. It's an invasive thing. It sinks into the roots of nearby foundations and causes the bricks to split, the, the blocks to kind of break apart. And that bitterness uh, is kind of this growing problem. It, it self-germinates and it spreads and it goes out until it is cut off. Okay? It causes trouble for others, not just yourself. Now, what I find interesting about this passage in Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, is that it keeps on going to describe the kind of trouble you might expect with a root of bitterness. It says in Hebrews 12:16 that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now that's not what you would necessarily expect to be the outcome of bitterness. Would it be? Now that's not what I think. When I think of someone being bitter, I don't think of them acting out in sexual immorality or like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal, but apparently the author of Hebrews has observed that people act out in all kinds of ways when they are under distress. They hurt. They're in pain. So they try to medicate that hurt with, he will say something like, sexual immorality. So they, they medicate that pain in the arms of a forbidden lover. Right? They run to someone to feel just something. Sexual immorality, he says. They are in mental turmoil, so they make rash decisions to escape the pain like Esau, who was willing to sell his birthright for a bowl of soup because he was hungry. Now think about this. 
if a physically hungry man will give away everything he has for a single meal, what will a spiritually hungry person do in a situation of spiritual starvation? No telling. The, the, the actions will grow. They will cause serious trouble for the people around him. So here's what I'd like to do this morning. Rather than read one passage of Job and preach on it, I'd like to do a brief survey of the entire book, simply looking at its message for sufferers and those who are grieving. Now, what you find as you look at the book of Job as a whole is actually a kind of microcosm of the world. The story of the world starts high in the garden, right? That's where you are in the beginning of Genesis. Then it falls from this mountain peak in what we call now simply as the fall, right? Genesis 3, falling from a high place. That's why we call it a fall. And it keeps on falling in the biblical narrative until it hits this pivot point in the New Testament. It begins to move upward at the incarnation of Jesus until it reaches all the way up into the heavens through the kingdom of God. So the pattern is high, low, higher. We might say life, death, resurrection. Okay, That's the pattern of Job. That's really the pattern of all of mankind. So this is certainly where Job begins in the book of Job. It starts at a high point. Look with me at the beginning of Job. If we turn back to Job 1, it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. So you see that Job's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. He's rich. Think about how much property you would have to have to have all of that livestock. It even says in verse 3 that he's the greatest of all people in the east. That's certainly a high beginning. Okay? Way up here. And then we see a sort of fall occurs right after this where Satan accuses Job of only following God because God has, well, God has blessed him. He's hedged about him is the way that the scriptures speak about that in Job. That God has put a hedge of protection around him from bad things happening to him. This is why Job is so successful, Satan says. So Job removes this hedge, or God removes this hedge and opens the door for Satan to attack Job. He essentially uh, takes the guards off and says, Satan, let's see if Job will remain faithful. So he takes everything away uh, and he takes everything from him uh, except for maybe the one thing that he would hope that would hold on like his wife. But even then he finds out that his wife is also a taunt to him and is embittered herself. So what is Job's response to this deep, deep tragedy? Well, you find it in Job 1, 1 verses 20 through 22. Look with me as we read Job's response to everything being taken away. His wife is there, but his uh, children are dead. His property has gone, and his livestock have been harmed through all of this. Deep, deep suffering is on Job, and this is Job's response in Job 1, 20 through 22. It says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. 
So in the face of deep tragedy, Job responds with worship. This, this is his expression. It's through the through worship. Now I want to slow down here uh, and, and see that here we have a, a picture of faithful mourning. This is what faithful mourning looks like. It says, in all this, Job didn't sin. That's actually the whole point of the book is that Job is actually in the right and that through all of this, he is not sin. So Job expresses deep grief here, but he doesn't suppress the deep grief. Do you see the difference? He's expressing that. He's getting this out. He's not suppressing it. Now today, think about our culture today and how we think about grief and suffering and things like this. Today, if someone acted as Job does here, we would be seriously concerned about their mental health. Seriously, think about that. Think about how Job acts here. I can hear the conversation going something like this. Hey, I heard about Job. I heard you talk to him the other day. How is he doing? And someone would say, it's not good. When we uh, when we broke the news to him, he just he fell on the ground and he like ripped his clothes off and said something about he came into the world naked and he's gonna go out naked. And next time we saw him, he had shaved his head and it doesn't look good. And his his friend would say something like, "Oh no, you think this tipped him over the edge? Like is he gonna, like is he crazy? You think he's gone mad?" And people would probably say, "I think so. I, I don't think he's all right." Okay, I can hear the conversation going something like that. People would think Job is crazy. But if Job is so crazy, why is the text telling us that he's worshiping and that he's sinless to this? That's what I want to ask us this morning. Could it be that we have traded the biblical pattern for grief for the root of bitterness that seems to compose itself? Could it be that Job is actually pursuing grace from God through worship, that he's seeking to obtain grace, as Hebrews would say, but we oftentimes are not that interested in grace. We're not looking for grace in our place of pain. We say, I'm fine. I, I can handle this. I'll be all right. Could that be the case? Could it be that we, uh, rather sadistically, deep down, of course, we wouldn't say this, but we all uh, might even have a, an odd cordiality with our pain because it gives us an excuse in our minds for our sinful behavior at times. So we can always go back to that point of pain and say, well, that's why. That's why. You see, Job gets his emotions out through worship initially. He, he works through this very quickly and starts to, to, to worship and to express his pain. Now, the alternative to this is keeping them in and trying to deal with that pain yourself. But we're only fooling ourselves, church, if we think that that pain will always stay inside. Hebrews tells us that if it takes root, it's going to grow and cause all kinds of trouble. And that will come out in the form of all kinds of different ways. Come out in the form of sin. Well, yes, I have inappropriate sexual proclivities, but it's because I'm hurt, someone will say. I can't help it. You can hear someone saying, well, yeah, I'm flaky and unreliable sometimes, but and that causes lots of trouble for other people. I know, I know it's, a, it's, a, it's a, not, not very helpful for others, and it's not very considerate, but if you only knew my pain, Right, this is the way that we sometimes act, where we excuse our sin because of our pain. Now, I, wanna, I don't want to in any way diminish the real pain that people experience. This is, this is something serious we're talking about. I'm not talking lightly. It's real pain. But the question I would like to pose is, is, is that pain 
a subconscious or maybe even conscious at times, excuse to act out of our hurt. To do the things that God tells us not to do. But since we're under stress, since we're under pain, we can say, well, that's why. That's our off-the-hook statement. Or is that pain something that we take to worship in God? These are the two responses that we typically see to pain. Worshiping through it or trying to hold it in and finding that it doesn't really work. But it's my physical health, someone might say. And again, I want to speak very gently here because I've seen physical suffering up close. I've seen people suffer in ways that they should not have suffered. That doesn't make sense. I don't want to take this lightly. But in chapter 2 of Job, God allows Satan to take away Job's health too. Job has his health taken away too. And the way that he responds is still faithful. Job has loathsome sores from his head to his toe. And it says that he scrapes these with a piece of broken pottery and sits in the dust and ashes. It's a miserable, miserable picture that we see of Job here. Just imagine a man with oozing sores just scraping himself. It is an awful picture. And as I read Job's wife's advice, I can see something as clear as he's scraping himself in serious physical pain. What is clear is she's allowed a root of bitterness to take root in her. Read with me Job 2, verses 9 through 10. Job 2, 9 through 10 says, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. The repeated theme through all of Job is that in all this, Job did not sin. He is seen as the upright man, the the blameless man. His integrity remains even amid the temptation to either curse God and die, as his wife would have him, or believe his friends' counsel that his suffering is due to something that he has done. I won't go through all the chapters of Job's friends, but basically all throughout the narrative, the, the finger keeps coming back to Job. Job, you're suffering because of what you've done. You've done something wrong. And yet the text keeps telling us over and over, Job... You're sinless. You're blameless. You're upright. You haven't done anything wrong. You didn't sin with your lips. Okay? And to, to believe either of these are, are choices of integrity would be a lie. Job can't believe his wife and he can't believe his friends. Yet this is often the counsel that we hear from friends when we are suffering. Think about it. Some embittered people will counsel you to curse God. Probably your unchristian friends. Why are you still remaining a Christian through this? Can't you see that God is clearly after you, that he is not a good God? Why would you worship a God that would allow you to get cancer? Why would you uh, worship a God that would allow this or allow that? Okay, So that's what you have on, on the one hand. And then others on the other hand, usually it's the Christians that are saying this. Others will try to find a fault in you to give you an answer for your suffering as, as, as to why this is happening. The Christians usually say, well, it's because you're a sinner. That's why you have cancer. You're a sinner. And you just you need to examine your life and figure out what that sin was that you did where you tripped up and it caused you to later have implications. And that's why you have cancer. That's why your, as your son died. That's why all this started to fall apart in your life because you're a sinner. Right? These are the two responses that we typically see in our culture. The non-Christians say, curse God and die. And the Christians say, it's your fault. Okay? Both of these, as you can see, are really despairing. 
But not despairing for just for us to hear, but they're despairing to Job. Listen to how Job speaks and, and the way that he talks as he's going through suffering. Somehow Job did not sin with his lips when in chapter 3 he laments the day of his birth. Now think about that. In other words, he wishes that he were never born, and yet God is still saying he's upright. Or when it says in Job 6, 8 through 10, Oh, that I might have my request, and that God would fulfill my hope. What's Job's hope? What's his request? That it would please God to crush me. That he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. Now, in light of recent events, you all know what has happened in our family. I want to be especially clear on this. Okay, Job desires that his life would be gone, either being uh, by never being born or by God somehow cutting him off, that God might cut him off from life and that his life might end. But he does not feel that this is something in his own hands. This isn't something that is left in the hands of Job. His temporal hope is that God would loose his hand and cut him off. Notice that's talking about God's hands cutting him off. Even if it means pain unsparing for the moment. But Job's like, even if it would be extremely painful, I would take this, that God would kill me. So Job even desires death, but Job is not suicidal. Okay? He's not saying, I need to just take this into my own hands and I'm going to end this. He doesn't even think that for a moment. Job is sinless with his lips through all of this. Now, the distinction is subtle, but it makes a difference, church. I want you to hear this as you look at the book of Job, to see it rightly. Our lives are not something to take into our own hands. They are something that we leave in God's hands. Right? That is the best place to be in life, in God's hands. We don't take that upon ourselves. It's hard. Absolutely it's hard. But this is Job's posture through all of this. Okay? So Job's position through it is that he's blameless, even after saying these things. But he doesn't understand his suffering. Job doesn't know exactly what's going on, the, the, the why, you might say. Yet he knows that if he were to answer back to God, he would be in the wrong. He can't really say anything to accuse God of being wrong. So basically, Job knows that he is right, that Job is right, and he also knows that God is right. Okay, But... He doesn't have uh, an answer to, to answer this tension of how both of these can be right and he suffer. You see, he's suffering and he's saying, how can I be right and God right and I'm suffering and there's, there's no problem here. Okay, that's, that's the tension here that Job doesn't really have an answer for. And frankly, there isn't even given an answer to us as readers. Isn't that interesting? As we read through the book of Job, it's not as, as we can see it, and Job can't see something that's hidden here. We aren't given an answer as to why this happened to Job. So as we read through this book of Job, I want you to realize that Job teaches us to have the freedom to say, I don't know why, and that is okay. I don't know why the suffering is happening. And the freedom of Job is to say, you don't need to have an answer. You can leave that in God's hands. So that's one of the first things that we see as we look through this gospel of Job, we might say. So at this point, when we're thinking about not having an answer, Job is righteous, God's righteous, he's still suffering, he doesn't want to even be born, he wishes that God would cut him off, it seems that Job is hopeless. Until we reach chapter 9, verse 32, Job presents kind of an internal solution in his mind where he wishes this would be the case. Look at Job 9, 32 
through 35, as he says his, of his relationship with God at this point. Job 9, 32 through 35 says this. For he is not a man, as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. Now let me sum this up in layman's terms. If there was some kind of way where there would be a link between God and man, if only, Job is saying, if only one who could, could, could have his foot on both sides of the proverbial fence, we might say, so that he could fully be God and satisfy justice and be fully man and therefore take the rod of discipline for man, for Job, so that there would be an answer given to uh, the, the, the sin and the wrong. And then it would eliminate Job's dreaded fear of God that he says that he still has, that he might be able to come boldly before the judge with confidence. He might be able to draw near. If only, Job says, if only there was this arbiter between God and God. And man. So Job is longing for some kind of divine intervention where the God of heaven might descend and link arms with humanity. You see this hope for good news again in Job 19, if you would turn there with me. Job 19, 25 through 27. This is the verse that we read this morning. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold another, and or shall my eyes behold and not another, my heart faints within me. This time Job is much less hypothetical. Did you catch that? How he speaks that? He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. It's not, I hope that my Redeemer lives. I uh, think that he might stand upon the earth one day. No, he will stand upon the earth. So Job somehow knows that his Redeemer, who he says is God, I shall see God is what he says, will become incarnate. The, the, what other way do you see God in your flesh? Right? What other way is the Redeemer coming to, to walk and stand upon the earth? This is talking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Okay, And he goes on to give more gospel hope. He not only looks forward to the hope of Jesus becoming incarnate, the incarnate God, who is fully God, fully man, but he says that after his skin, now think about this, the picture we get, after his skin is destroyed, obviously talking about death, he will, in his flesh, his skin, his, his body, see God. Okay, Job's hope is in the resurrection hope of Jesus. It's not just in Jesus, it's even in the resurrection. This is the first, uh, the oldest book of the Bible, many scholars think. See how far back Jesus can be seen in the scriptures. But that isn't what any around, anyone around Job is saying, unfortunately. Right? This is something that Job just kind of gets this little bitty glimmer of hope. In Job 21, 34, he sums up how he feels about his friend's counsel as he goes through suffering. Job says in 21:34 of his friends and the things that they've been saying to him, how then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There is nothing left of your answers but falsehood. This is how Job feels about his friends. Have you ever felt like this? 
or you're going through deep, deep suffering and you're walking through it and everyone around you is offering you empty nothings. Just, just hollow sympathies, stale remarks that everyone says at all the same events where they're not really saying anything new. They're just kind of saying, I'm trying to help, but I don't really have anything to tell you. Just that, yeah, I'm sorry. Think about that. All the while, and you're going through this suffering, your friends are saying that, and it just kind of seems like this cognitive dissonance. You're like, I know you're trying to help, but like, yeah, that's not really doing it. It kind of seems like an empty nothing. All the while, internally, you're trying to figure out how you think about God through all of that, right? Where you knew God was there, but you weren't even sure how you really felt about him. Right? You still believed in him. Yeah, God's there. But sometimes you felt like you couldn't even swallow your own spit without God eyeballing you, as Job laments in Job 7.19. Like he can't even swallow without feeling like God is looking over his shoulder. No, he wants God to just leave him alone. That's the way that Job speaks in this text. Like if you would just get away, God. And yet paradoxically, his greatest longing is for who? God himself, whom he feels distance from. He just wants him to come near and comfort him. He says in uh, Job 9:11, behold, he passes by me. And I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Do you ever feel like God is there, but he's elusive? Like you're doing the right things, but you just can't feel like you can grasp him. Like you're kind of passing ways and not really touching each other. You read and you open your Bible and you're like, I'm trying, but I, I don't, I'm not seeing you, God. I'm going to church and something's off here. Something's not right. I, I, I know you're moving about, but I don't perceive you. Uh, behold, I, I see you're passing by me. I see your word is preached, but I'm not seeing you clearly. Something's not right. Well, the, the ESV Bible summed up this perfectly when it talks about Job. It says, Job feels that God seems both too close and too far away. I think that says it better than anything I've ever heard when it comes to Job. That God feels too close and too far away at the same time. I can remember a time when one of my children, I don't say which one, and I'll try not to, to give away the gender as I tell this story, but the, the child had a fit of confusion through one of our moving experiences. The changes of the move were hitting the child really, really hard. They weren't understanding what was happening with all the change going about them because they were too young. So this fit erupted, and uh, the child flailed around like it was crazy the way that the child was acting. They, and the child kept on saying, hold me, hold me, hold me. They were crying for Bree and I to, to, to pick the child up. It's really hard not to say which one it is. I don't want to give that away. I want to, I want to respect them. But th there was this time where they were saying, hold me, hold me, hold me. And of course, uh, Bree and I, we would pick the child up and hold them. And as soon as we would pick the child up, they'd start squirming and say, put me down, put me down, put me down. So there was this, this feeling of being too close and too far. Like, they, we couldn't get that just right, and we didn't really know what to do. Bree and I, uh, this happened for probably 20 minutes or more. It was scary for us. I mean, we called our pastor at the time. We're like, what is going on? It was quite bizarre and traumatic for all of us at the time. But now as I think back on that, I think the, the, the child, our, our kid, was just physically expressing what many people feel on the inside. Mm -hmm. That child was just letting out what was going on on the inside. How often we flail around internally in our soul, feeling like God is both too close and too far at the same moment. We humans are confused and frail beings, but what we need most in those moments is not a distant God, 
to kind of step back, hands off, um, and allow us to hurt ourselves and others in our pain. Rather, what we need is a God who is going to come and hold us tight with an incarnational love. This is what we need God to do in these times. A, a love like Jesus brings where he's not too close or too far. A love that allowed us to hurt him in order to save us. This is what Jesus did in the incarnation. He came to be with us. And what did we do? We killed him. Why did he do that? To save us. This is the love of God for sinners like you and me. This is the love of God for sufferers, for those who are grieving. This is what he does. He comes and holds us, allows himself to be harmed because of what we are doing in order to relieve us of our suffering. This is what it means that our Redeemer lives. We need a God that isn't afraid or disinterested of our pain. This is the love of Jesus. And many times, I'm not sure why we say this, but I've even said it myself, but we say that the best thing that could have happened to Job through all of this is that his friends just stay silent as they were in the beginning. But what if they'd preached a gospel to Job after they'd sat with him for a little bit in silence? Yes, but instead of condemning him with the law after their silence, what if they preached the gospel to Job? And echoed back to Job, yeah, that you do have a hope. You do have a Redeemer that lives. What if our communities gathered around hurting people to offer them more than empty nothings, but rather gospel-centered truths of how Jesus makes a real difference in our outlook on life? Where we don't have to stay in our depression, but we can move through the valley, not camp out in the valley. Where we're not just sitting there in silence saying, man, they're having it really hard, and just leaving it at that. What if we came and shared the good news of Jesus Christ with people through their suffering to help them through that? The question really is, is, is silence better than the gospel? Is silence better than the gospel? It's my opinion, and it's just my opinion, that Job's suffering was exacerbated by his friends and family. Job reached the, the very, very low points that he did, not just because he was in his own mental turmoil, unaffected by other people, but actually they made it worse. Had they preached the gospel to him, I think that his desire to die would have probably faded much quicker. I think that he would have moved through that, and I think his healing process would have been sped up. Had they sat with him in silence, yes, while he expressed his feelings and worship, saying, that's all right, it's all right, it's all right to let it out, it's all right to cry, it's all right to grieve, it's all right to, to do the things you're doing, but then move forward in hope of the gospel, I think things would have still been hard, they would have, but they would have been less hard. They would have been like the difference of trading a burden for a lighter burden, a yoke for a easier yoke. You know what I'm saying? The kind of hope that Jesus brings with the gospel. Yes, it's still hard at times. Yes, you still have to keep moving forward, but it's a lighter way of moving forward. It's a gospel hope. So if I could sum up this first half of the book of Job, we'll look at the other half in the ending next week. I'd say that it shows us the high beginning, okay, the tragic fall, and then this pivotal point of hope where Job really realizes that his Redeemer lives. Things are starting to, to move forward. It, it gives us a picture of maintaining integrity in the midst of tragedy. And what that looks like is very expressive worship. Pouring our hearts out to God who knows our pain. Being real with our pain with others and with God. And our worshipful expression, uh, in our worshipful expression, we do not speak ill of God, allowing such 
hard uh, providences happening. We don't say, well, this happened because God's just being mean to me. And we also don't exclude God from it, saying that his hand wasn't in the matter. Those are two things that we avoid through all of this. We don't say that uh, that God is wrong in this. And at the same time, we don't say that he had nothing to do with this. Okay? Shall we receive good from the hand of God and not evil, is what Job tells his wife. And lastly, and most importantly, the hope that fuels such worship and integritous, a worshipful and integritous expression is Jesus. Jesus is what moves us forward through our suffering, through our grief, so that we don't have to grieve like the world does. That's the way that the New Testament speaks about this. We don't grieve like the world grieves. We grieve with a different kind of hope. A resurrection hope. And we remember that Jesus is the Redeemer who lives. That Jesus is the one who's neither too far away nor too close to us. He is the God-man who lays his hand on us and God as our arbiter to deal with us. He is Emmanuel. God with us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your love for us answers some of these questions that we have. How how can we deal with a God that allows such hardship, that removes these hedges at times to where we do feel deep sorrow, we do feel deep pain even physically at times. We thank you that Jesus is the, the one answer and the one hope that we are given to where we can move forward through such things. Lord, we pray that you bring healing to our hearts this morning through the gospel of Jesus, reminding us that we do have a Redeemer that understands our pain and even takes that upon himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him might not perish but might have eternal life. That is our hope this morning. We thank you that you've given an answer to us to be an arbiter between us.